Welcome back to ES250 Intro to African American Studies. I'm Dr. Courtney Cox. This week, we're talking about African Americans in TV and film, and I'm grateful to have two incredible guests this week to share their work and experience within the industry. For this episode, we're joined by Thalana Payton, a film scholar based in Los Angeles, California, who specializes in African American representation on screen. Thanks for joining us. So, Falana, for you, what is the historical relationship of African Americans and film? Well, I think it's absolutely like intertwined from start to whenever, let's say, finish would be, right? So, like, usually when people talk about like film from the very beginning, they begin with The Birth of a Nation, uh, D.W. Griffith's film in 1915. And then when they talk about African American cinema, it comes as a response to. Uh, D.W. Griffith's work, but in reality, that was absolutely not the case. And um, Allison Nadia Field's work, um, specifically Uplift Cinema, tells us that Black, um, historically Black universities like Tuskegee and Hampton were already experimenting in filmmaking way before the birth of a nation. So mm. rather than it being like thought of as like, oh, Black people started making films in response to this very racist film. It's like, no, we've actually always been a part of this experimental process. And then it was, you know, after The Birth of a Nation that I think feature filmmaking became a priority, but it never was that Black folks were, aren't, were a part of, like, the history of, like, the formulation of what we now know as American cinema um, and even Hollywood. Um, so I, I think that was probably one of the most prolific um, addendums to film scholarship within the last few years was her work and, and making it very clear that from the very beginning, African Americans have been contributing to the film canon and it never was just in response to a racist film from 1915. So we already see there there's kind of this understanding or misunderstanding of this history as reactive rather than something that has flourished as a result of African-American creativity, um, the ways that in certain institutions specifically there has been um, this focus, this understanding of creating Black life on screen. Um, for your research and your creative work, you focus largely on the history of Black women on screen. What are the trends you've seen over time and, and how do you see these women represented on camera as well as how they're treated off camera? Yeah, so um, my work begins in the 1930s, and that's only because Hallelujah, which came out, at, well, in the end of the 20s, beginning of the 30s, starred the it was the first um, all-Black cast film produced by a major Hollywood studio. So my work centers Black women's relationship, particularly to the Hollywood studio system, and that is the first film where um, the star Nina Mae McKinney first Black woman leading actress in a Hollywood-produced all-Black film. Well, the trend from there has been really interesting, actually, to track. So what I noticed is that Black women performers and their relationship to Hollywood has been historically been complex and continues to be complex. And it has everything to do with a lot of uh, uh, pieces of colorism, um, but then also just black womanhood and it being um, black women being considered something that's taboo, something that people consider as undesirable, but also desirable. So um, my work begins with Nina Mae McKinney and then moves directly to Lena Horne, who was the next, you know, what, what a lot of people consider the first black woman like film star um that because because she played in major roles but in effect like she only actually 
was the lead in two all black cast films in 1942 um and which was which was stormy weather and cabin in the sky she had a seven-year deal with mgm and at the time um contracts were huge contracts um, assumed that um, a studio was investing in creating a star and with lena horn although she received this contract what MGM did was only put her in roles that could easily be cut when the films were played in the South. So she was never involved in the narrative plot of any of the films. She probably was in between like 13 to 15 Hollywood produced studio films throughout the 40s and into the 50s, but she never really had a role. She was playing herself. And so therefore, she didn't necessarily become a big Hollywood star because she never received leading role opportunities. And also MGM wouldn't um, borrow, her, borrow her out the way they borrowed out other stars. And that kind of continued, it continues until now, even with contracts not being as like, you're not as beholden to contracts as they were back in the day, there's still a lack of like consistent leading role opportunities for Black women performers. So beginning with Nina Mae McKinney and going all the way until today with Holly Berry, it's absolutely no difference in the treatment they're receiving and the opportunities that are given to them through the Hollywood system. I want to go back to this term you use just to make sure everyone's on the same page, this term colorism um, and understanding that as this hierarchy um, in terms of if we think about movies, it's about attractiveness, desire, intelligence, all these things are read through this hierarchy of colorism, which is based on the actual complexity. So even through this idea when we say like African-American women in television film, there's a hierarchy even within that. And I guess one of the questions about thinking about something like colorism, for example, is how a body that is raced as African-American, as Black, can also be read through class, um, beauty in a variety of ways um, that is, even within thinking about this particular demographic, very different in terms of their experience with the Hollywood system. Yeah, and I think that's what's so interesting because there's this idea of exceptionalism when we think about the treatment light skin Black women received and the opportunities they received in Hollywood. So like somebody like Lena Horne and Dorothy Dandridge. And so yes, I think one of the one of the most um, amazing things about studying Lena Horne is that she was very aware of what she looked like and what privileges she was receiving because of what she looked like. As a very light-skinned woman with European features, she knew that the only reason that Hollywood was interested in her was because of the fact because of her proximity to whiteness. Um, but she also knew that the fact that she was a black woman still held her back from opportunities that were available to her white counterparts. And I think that is what's so interesting when we think about the history of black women in Hollywood, because there's a lot of conversation about, you know, light skinned women and light skinned women having certain privileges, but they were still very much boxed into the same types of discrimination that black women in general received lack of opportunities and lack of respect um, consistently dealing with racism consistently trying to prove themselves as as worthy as as capable of their white counterparts so i think you know it, it we kind of have to change the language and it's not at all like being like a comparison of like dark skin and light skin opportunities and experiences but it's being real about what how blackness operates in in, in spaces where we're dominated by you know white supremacy and these white institutions this is how the one drop rule is still very much a, a phenomenon that continues to like wreak havoc kind of you know so like if you are considered a black woman no matter what you look like you are still boxed in because there's this understanding about 
desirability. So light-skinned Black women can be beautiful and seemingly be and beautiful to all walks of life. However, the fact that they are still Black women, they are still taboo. For years and years, you know, even Dorothy Dandridge couldn't kiss a white man on the screen, you know? Like, everybody in the world can acknowledge that you're beautiful, but the fact that she it was beautiful is, is kind of like the crux in, like, why she can't then be, you know, in films where it's majority white cast or why she can't have a white, you know, boyfriend or, or husband in any of these films because miscegenation was something that continued to be, you know, remarked on as, as illegal at one point and then just very, very controversial on screen. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that this is making me think about is a couple weeks ago, we read an essay in this class um, called Nina Simone Was Very Black. And the piece is both speaking to like what made Nina Simone so special and so incredible in terms of how she had to navigate the music industry, for example, the civil rights movement, all these things as a dark-skinned Black woman. And what the erasure, you know, he, call, he talks about Black women as ghosts, as the ways in which um, the labor, the passion, the skill set, the craft of Black women is often erased throughout history. And then he, he frames that within the context of not only what Nina Simone meant as an activist and an artist, but what it meant for Zoe Saldana to be cast to play her. Um, and, and Zoe Saldana as like Afro-Latina woman who's light-skinned, who has, like you said, that desirability in a particular way where she can do things like comic book films and things like that. Um, but also the way that her skin is dark, you know, the ways that they have to make her Nina in a way that there are a ton of actresses that already have Nina characteristics in terms of the way that her lips are, the way her nose is, the way that they're adding all of these things on these prosthetics, darkening the skin of someone like Zoe Saldana, in many ways collapses this colorism thing or the larger issues of representation that Nina Simone very much made central to her work. Yeah, I mean, that whole situation is complicated and if I can be completely honest, ridiculous. Um, the, 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 just from the casting in general, yeah, it speaks to, I, I would say, a kind of light skin privilege, but it also just speaks to stupidity in the industry. Like, it's, it's, it's beyond that, you know? It's like, Nina, the, if you understand who Nina Simone is and who Nina Simone, like, was and her politics, like, and if you cared about those things, then this wouldn't even be a question. And so I'm not even, like, it's beyond Zoe Saldana taking the role because I'm sure she you know, thought she was doing something special and that she could really, you know, this was a challenge or something like that. But it's, it, I, it returns back to who funded this, who allowed this to be made, who directed it, who produced it, who put money towards something like this. Because if you did, if you put money towards something like this, then you obviously really do not care about who Nina Simone was as an artist, as a person. That I think that is where I kind of just, sideline that conversation because it's it really it's just like there's so many problematic factors into that movie I've I ignored it when I first heard about it and I hoped it never happened and then the fact that it did happen I still ignore it because I don't want to have anything to do with that conversation because there's so many problematic factors um, I think it was just disrespectful from so many different layers and knowing who this artist was and yeah that's all I got to say about that <laughs> Completely fair. I think I think that is so important, but I think it does reflect the difference between, well, she's a Black woman, why can't you play this Black woman? It's like there are a lot of larger issues and factors in the ways that these two women move about the world and they're like very differently. And I think that's something that's definitely worth thinking about. Yeah. <laughs>
The clip aside on the history of African-Americans in film, it's a very short clip, but it's heavily male-centric in terms of the voices as well as the television and film um, that's privileged there. And in, when we think about this longer history, once we move out of the 30s, 40s, 50s, we get into the 60s and the 70s, we think about black exploitation films that are very much also rooted in this very black male-centric culture in terms of the way it's right and the ways that women are portrayed. What is the historical importance of this genre in terms of thinking about race and gender as we're moving beyond the early Hollywood kind of systems of the 30s, 40s, 50s? I mean, what I like about it, just thinking about black exploitation in general is thinking about the social political placement of black exploitation, right? So you have to think about like what was happening in the 60s and then what was starting to happen in the 70s. So all of the civil the civil rights movements, the the many assassinations of JFK, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Mega Everest, so many assassinations of these political leaders. You also think about the countercultural movements of that were happening on university campuses, um, LGBT movements, women movements. It, it was popping in the 60s, right? So popping that the uh, film industry could not keep up with the politics of everything that was happening. And so there was a lot of television became a lot more popular, but also the film industry was suffering because they could not keep up with literally like the changing political times and there being this large conservative movement that why we ended up with Richard Nixon as president in the late 60s, but also there's still like, you know, the Black Panther Party was gaining traction in the late 60s and, and establishing themselves very, very well at, all across the country in the late 60s and early 70s. So I think the fact that black exploitation kind of slid in in this moment where Hollywood was struggling to maintain an audience and captivated a, a niche market, which was black audiences that Hollywood had played no attention to up until that point. I think that is what makes it so remarkable because, you know, we have early filmmakers like um, Melvin Van Peebles and Gordon Parks and Gordon Parks Jr. like making films that were all Black cast and that were speaking to, you know, the moment for Black people in general, wanting to see Black superheroes in a way, wanting to see Black people win. And the earliest Black exploitations that, Black exploitation films that we see, the ones, particularly the ones that were made by Black filmmakers, have a very um, clear political leaning, very Black nationalist, very much about, I mean, Black masculinity in a, in a very particular kind of way that, of course, there was a, a lot of misogyny, but it also had a lot to do with how they were, how I think that at this time they were imagining what power looked like and power looked like adopting patriarchy um, in a particular way. And nationalism was very much also they sideline women's rights. Um, but like I said, the beauty in black exploitation was the ability to like see all of these black people on film that we had never really seen before, especially all at one time. And it became, of, of course, extremely commercialized. It became, you know, saturated, it saturated the market and Hollywood attempted to engage in black exploitation once they realized that this was a a genre that was able to sustain them while they figured out what they were about to do. And yeah, I think I think that is what makes it really special is, is, is considering where it came from and how it kind of came out of these movements and Hollywood's kind of uh, denial of Black audiences 
And I think that kind of speaks to the mo movement and the moment more than particularly like the content. Because the content, yes, there's a lot of very problematic stuff throughout many of those films. But I think it's about like, for me, the, the, the visual aspect of it and then it's, it's politics at this time was really doing something that was that had never been done before. And then there was a couple films that were able to slide in there that were considered black exploitation, but were actually not and doing some really incredible work as well. So that's so interesting because you're situating black exploitation firmly within civil rights movement um, and its aftermath, like you mentioned these assassinations as well as um, black power and thinking about what the black power movement, the black Panthers offer, right? Even as you know, we see there are members of the Black, Black Panther Party who are very much seeing these films and saying, this is the politic that we need. This is a radical politic that needs to be seen. We're finally being represented in a particular way by these Black filmmakers. Um, and it's really interesting in reading the Guardian piece assigned by Todd Boyd, he's writing, it makes sense to see these films that are rooted in that very specific historical political context rebooted. We have like Dolomite is My Name, which is on Netflix. We have another Shaft film that I'm not sure we asked for. There's a, you know, Superfly is coming back. So there's this way that they're taking these concepts and, and applying them to a very 2019, 2020 context. So over the past couple of years, we've seen these films situated either in a contemporary context or remaking a particular moment um, and invoking a certain kind of nostalgia for these films. Um, do you think it makes sense for these films to be rebooted in this moment? Yeah, I think um, it was, I mean, if we're comparing what, what was happening socially, politically in the 60s and kind of where we have been within recent years prior to the latest presidency, it makes sense that it would be a similar type of climate. However, I kind of push back against it being um, these films that particularly have come out being something that was necessarily needed. Um, I think reboots can be lazy in general, but the films that kind of came, I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of them, but um, I actually saw Superfly and I saw the one with Taraji, um, Proud Mary, Proud, Proud Mary, I think. Proud Mary, yeah. Yeah, and what was, I feel like that, biggest issue with a lot of these films were that they just weren't actually updated. They weren't actually like reflective of our current time. And it was really strange, especially a film like Superfly, like it was based in Atlanta and the guy had a perm. Um, and it was just a lot of like, you know, it was like very contemporary words used in very old concepts of crime and <laughs> and justice it was um yeah they didn't really make any sense so i do think the moment called for um experimental filmmaking black filmmaking like very much like i feel like marginalized filmmakers were coming out with a lot of exciting things i don't necessarily consider the black black exploitation re reboots in those categories just because like i said they felt very lazy um, and not at all contemporary. I don't think any of these films have done well, um, except for Dolomite. But Dolomite is also very different because it's telling the story of Dolomite versus like Superfly and Proud Mary are fictional characters um, that they were just retelling over again with heavy baseline funk music and <laughs> but no particular like contemporary context. So 
Yeah, I, 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 I felt really conflicted about the like surge in black exploitation specific reboots at that particular time because yeah, I just don't think they were done well. Maybe that's the case. But like I said, there were other really, really amazing films I think coming out that speak to speak more to um, the moment and also kind of rehash the time period in a way that makes more sense as far as our contemporary moment. I'm thinking like films like Barry Jenkins films like Moonlight and other films that came out that, you know, were a lot more timely, um, but also reflective of the moment that didn't have to be black exploitation. Yeah, that makes sense. So after we moved through the 70s, um, we have this moment, um, you know, the 80s and 90s start to give us something that's very different from black exploitation in that era. Um, and the 90s especially have been heralded as this renaissance of African-American television and film. What do you think made this decade so ripe economically, culturally for black filmmakers, producers, and actors? I mean, there was so much happening, um, specifically in the late 80s, early 90s. And I think the, the way we see black artists kind of rise to the occasion when um, particularly like low income communities are suffering the most, I think is really, really amazing to witness. And I think that is what was happening in the late 80s, early 90s with the prevalence of the crack epidemic, um, the AIDS crisis, the economic downturns that were occurring across the country. Um, there was just a lot of um, things that were particularly, uh, the, a lot of the welfare policies were being pulled back. There was a lot of things happening that were impacting low income, particularly black communities around the country, which made it ripe for creativity. Creativity that was actually like very DIY, very much like, you know, we have to do this on our own. We can't rely on Hollywood to give us opportunities. We can't rely on the entertainment industry and that's a general. So where we see, you know, rap music really like hitting its stride, hip hop becoming a cultural phenomenon. We also see black filmmakers doing the same type of work. You know, it'd be, we always usually begin talking with, you know, Spike Lee and him kind of setting the tone for what we see and what has been named now the new black aesthetic of the of the early 90s and moving into the 90s and yeah and then thinking like politically like the end of the reagan era and going into the clinton era and kind of like what was happening in relation to mass incarceration what was happening in relation to welfare and poverty and our and and black people's relationship to the presidency and clinton particularly and his particular kind of pandering i think that it was just ripe with a lot of conflicting um, opinions regarding blackness and the signs of blackness because we're also thinking about as we're transitioning out of you know the cosby era and the cosby effect and middle-class blackness being idealized in a particular way in the 80s that was not sustainable. Um, black artists speaking speaking towards the culture that tried to make it seem like the American dream was something super accessible to all people when it in actuality has never been. And so yeah, the early 90s is a moment that I, I mean the 90s in general as far as black entertainment, film, television, music, I think provides so much in thinking about the larger context of what was happening politically in this country. Yeah, and that DIY aesthetic, I think is interesting with someone like Robert Townsend, who's actually featured in that six minute clip um, as someone that like 
just took out a bunch of credit cards, maxed them out to make these films. So it's this indie filmmaker DIY aesthetic that's happening um, with people. And, and it's happening in the 90s across the board. It's not just within African-American filmmakers. There's a lot of people that will have stories they haven't seen told and are telling them in a way um, that they're, they're finding they have to finance on their own. And then they're later kind of co-opted and bought up by the Hollywood system, or they create an aesthetic that's then seen as something that's attractive that people are emulating in a particular way. Do you have kind of like a quintessential 90s TV and film lineup? Is there like a couple of things that you're like, this is the 90s to me, this is something that me that says like black TV and film in the 90s? <laughs> I think I, I'm, I was a particular fan of the late 90s, what was, what was emerging probably post 95-ish. Um, I was really captive. I am still very much captivated by a lot of the work that came out, but um, I was a huge Brandy fan. So of course, Moesha played a huge role in my entire life up to this point. So Moesha is definitely top of the list. Um, I really actually enjoyed Set It Off. So I, you, what you'll hear from me is a lot of like women-centered, um, Black women-centered films and television because that's, I think, has informed me as an adult. So Set It Off was really amazing to me. I like Jada Pinkett. And as far as film, my favorite, my top, top 90s film is Love Jones because I am, you know, an empath and sap and all those things and a fan of, you know, um, art and poetry. And I saw myself being one of them, you know, one day. Um, and then of course, Love and Basketball, everybody else's favorite because I was an athlete. And it spoke to me as a young woman interested in playing in the WNBA. Um, but yeah, it was those, I think, if I can name fil film and television that shaped me into who I am today, those would probably be my top. Oh yeah, and then also, I don't know if I mentioned Sister Sister was also something, was definitely a vibe. I've probably seen every episode of Moesha, every episode of Sister Sister, and then I've watched these other films multiple times. <laughs> Yeah, Sister, Sister, and Moesha are both those, like, after-school staples, and of course, like, completely dating myself, like, when, like, time, like, the time sensitivity of shows, like, when you watch them um, mattered so much, because there was not, unless you recorded on your VCR, um, if you could figure out how to do that, that was always magical, but otherwise, it was about a certain time where a certain thing came on, and you're, the ritual of watching those shows, and what's one of the things that's so um, interesting in this current landscape is the way that these shows are now being infused into streaming platforms, for example. So they're kind of having a rejuvenation in a particular way. But we're also in this other kind of moment, I'll say, um, that in many ways mirrors and in, in many ways is also very different than the 90s in terms of African-American representation in TV and film, whether we're thinking about someone like Shonda Rhimes and Shondaland, Ava DuVernay, Lena Waithe, Issa Rae, Jordan Peele, Khalil Joseph, it goes on and on. Do you think this is a sign of something completely different from the 90s? Are you, are you seeing kind of this as a similar kind of trend, right? So seeing the 90s as this hope and this promise, but then we end up with something like Oscar So White now that's reflecting how much things haven't changed. Yeah, I mean, I think Black representation on film and television is something that is extremely cyclical. And that's something that we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about you know, our current moment, we think about past moments, because it seems like people, I mean, I, I don't know how many people forget or not, but the 90s was particularly special with a lot of Black representation in film and television, but then the 2000s, it all completely disappeared on television, um, completely, there were no more Black casts, 
even sitcoms, but dramas, none of that for a very, very long time. Um, and then also films. It was very, very whitewashed for a really long time until another moment occurred, you know? And I think that's something we need to keep in mind when we're speaking about this moment, which is special and beautiful in its own way. And I think it also has a lot of that DIY aesthetic where, you know, we have someone like Issa coming off of YouTube and we have streaming platforms now that offer a lot more, uh, I feel like, indie content produced work um, that give marginalized uh, filmmakers and content creators space to create, but also understanding that if we're thinking in the larger sense about Hollywood and, you know, uh, network television, cable television, that these moments come and go. And how can we as viewers, as supporters, you know, figure out ways to validate these, this type of work that is outside of Hollywood. So one of the things about Oscars So White that I find interesting um, and that I talk about often is that the Oscars have always been so white, right? Like it, the Oscars, um, the institution of the Oscars is steeped in white supremacy from the very beginning of its actual programming until today. So even people like to talk about Cheryl Boone Isaacs as president. She did a really excellent job with trying to diversify, of course, the um, voters and the, like, the voting body for the Oscars. However, um, one of my problems with um, even that concept is that the presidency of the um, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is only for a limited time. So once she, her time was over, her tenure as president ended, none of the policies or um, initiatives that were important to her translated to the next president. Hence, we have the Oscars of 2020, right? So it's kind of like, how can we as audiences and spectators and educators think about the work that we're supporting and, watch and, and, and teaching that validates it um, as important and necessary outside of thinking of the Oscars as being that validation point, because I cannot imagine a world where the Oscars will consistently exhibit diversity. That's just not built into the fabric of that institution at all. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not having the Oscars ever be reflective of the world because it wasn't built to do that. But what can we do as spectators and as audience members to lift up and fund even, you know, the content that we enjoy watching. So that is always there. And that being a form of validation versus the relying on the Oscars and relying on opportunities through Hollywood to, to make it happen. I just don't ever see that really being a priority of the institution of Hollywood. That makes so much sense in, in terms of, of thinking that this has been going on for so long. And, you know, we started with thinking about Birth of a Nation as this, that is still heralded even in film schools today as this monumental important thing to unpack and then later on we kind of like say oh yeah it's also really racist people are in blackface eating you know chicken in congress right so some of it is that it's always been infused that way and maybe this the critique while fair reflects an ongoing thing that that is probably never going to change and you talk about um investing both as you know audiences and investing into um, projects that we care about how do you think that 
folks can do that? Do you have a couple of recommendations for those of us that want to invest in these next kind of creators um, that are often marginalized within the academy space? Yeah. I think one of the biggest examples, and I think that's something that continues to move forward, is understanding how how all the layers of creative creativity work. So we have a lot of like early content creators who use things like Kickstarter to get things going, but also we have like Ava DuVernay who started an entire distribution company called Array. And Array's entire point is to distribute marginalized filmmakers work and they have a they have a relationship with Netflix. And that's how we've been able to see a lot of films that would have otherwise kind of disappeared into the ether following their film festival circuit. So I think Array is consistently, they're always fundraising. There's always ways in which you can pour money, pour volunteer efforts into Array. But companies like that, where we see Black creatives trying to figure out ways to sustain outside of depending on commercial Hollywood film production, because it's not going to always be there. The opportunities are not going to always be there. And so doing it in ways that we are able to support each other, like a company like Array, I think is one of the first biggest steps. Donate to Array, watch films from Array, you know, like get involved with that kind of work. Great, that's really great. It's not only giving us like, you've given us such a rich history, but you've also kind of given us the step forward and kind of thinking about the future of African-Americans in television and film. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, this was excellent. I could talk about this all day. <laughs> <laughs>